I'm Marty Moscowain. Welcome to the debut of The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. Every Friday at noon, we'll explore the qualities that make us human and unique, some of the challenges and opportunities for a well-lived life, and the bonds that can connect us and the forces that can drive us apart. Today on the show, happiness. We have the right to pursue it in this country, but how many of us actually feel happy and can even define what happiness is? Well, the longest study of happiness in the United States by the Harvard Study of Adult Development has been going on for 85 years. And it came to the simple and profound conclusion that deep and positive relationships are vital to our emotional well-being and physical health, even our longevity. So how do we nurture these relationships? Can we overcome troubled childhoods to develop these bonds? How do we stay connected when the distractions and disruptions of life can keep us apart or even pull us apart? Well, fortunately, we have the director and associate director of the study with us, Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz. They have a new book based on the study, and it's titled The Good Life. Robert Waldinger is professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, joining us from Massachusetts. Nice to have you with us on The Connection. It's great to be here. Thank you. You're very welcome. And also with us, and in fact, sitting right across from me is Mark Schultz, and he's a professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. And Mark, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. So nice to be here. Well, let me just start with this study. And and I read your book, and it is such, uh, Robert Waldinger, such a goldmine of information. Not just 85 years of information, but it's based on interviews and questionnaires and brain imagery. Uh, What has it been like to be part of this project? Well, it's been an amazing thing to do. So we stand on the shoulders of so many researchers who've been doing this. We're in our 85th year. And so it's wonderful to inherit this and then get to read through and watch all these life stories as they've played out. That's what's so unique about this study, that it looks at people all the way through their lives. Well, in fact, Mark, what's interesting, it started with Harvard students, men, and also men from from the Boston area actually lived in some of these low-income areas. But over the years, you've added partners and Mm -hmm. wives and women and daughters. So it's a much more complete picture, I'm assuming. It is. And those two groups that you talked about were really uh, growing up in very different social contexts. So two-thirds of the sample roughly were from inner-city neighborhoods, poorest neighborhoods of Boston. Most of these kids lived in tenement buildings without running water. And then literally across the city were these kids who were starting university at Harvard University had a very different prospect on life. And over the years, as you've said, we enlarged it to the wives of participants and now more than 1,300 children of the original participants. Well, let's jump to the conclusion, not to steal your thunder here, but Bob, let me go to you. I mean, the big takeaway is that positive, good relationships, they keep us happier, they keep us healthier. Um, Are you surprised by that finding? Well, yeah. You know, at first, Marty, we didn't believe our own findings because it stands to reason that good relationships would make us happier. Okay. But how could good relationships make it less likely that you'd get coronary artery disease or arthritis? How could it make it more likely you would live longer? We And the reason why we didn't believe it is we didn't understand how relationships could get into our bodies and change our physiology. But then many other groups have begun to find the same things. And so we have a lot of confidence that this finding is true. So we're talking literally about the mind-body connection, Bob. 
Exactly. And how they intersect and how they interact. Here's a really basic question for you, Mark Schultz. What's a good and positive relationship? What does that look like? Yeah, that's an easy question. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of at the heart of our conversation here. Yeah, first of all, it's really important when we talk about relationships, we're talking about all kinds of relationships. So it might be your partner in life. It could be friends or relatives. um, But good relationships do have some commonalities. So part of it is reciprocity, that, that you get things out of the relationship and your relationship partner in turn gets important things. Trust is an important part of that connection. Relationships, it turns out, are really good at helping us cope with stress. So someone who allows us to calm when we're feeling stressed or frightened um, helps us think about paths forward. So it may be very practical ideas. But support is a, a key aspect of relationships. Relationships also teach us sort of who we are. It helps us figure out our identities and where we've come from. So relationships, when we sat down and and wrote the book, we realized the breadth of things that relationships sort of help us with is quite enormous. Well, picking up on that, and and, uh, Robert Waldinger, going back to you, how does that affect then our physical health, what Mark Schultz just described? Well, the best hypothesis we have is that this is about stress that relationships, when they're good, help us manage stress. And as you know, stress comes along for all of us all day long. And if I have something stressful happen, I can literally feel my body rev up. You know, my heart rate increases, uh, probably my blood pressure goes up. And that's normal. The body's meant to meet stress with what we call fight or flight mode. But then when the stress is removed, our bodies are supposed to go back to baseline. What we think happens is that if if I have something upsetting happen and I can go home and talk to someone or call someone on the phone who's a good listener, I can literally feel my body calm down. And we think what happens is that people who don't have anyone like that in their lives, people who are isolated, um, may stay in a kind of fight-or-flight mode, may stay at low levels of stress rather than coming back to baseline. And that circulating stress hormones that are higher, higher levels of inflammation, gradually wear away our bodies. Well, and picking up on that and going back to you, Mark Schultz, I was thinking about stress, that oftentimes when we're stressed, we focus on the past, we worry about the future, but we don't, you know, we don't focus on the here and now. Right, right. Right, so stress does all sorts of things to get us off kilter, and one of those is exactly what you're describing, that we lose our capacity to sort of concentrate on what's in front of us. And and when we're, there's some research, really interesting research done by uh, Dan Gilbert and colleagues looking at when people's attention was on the present, on what they were doing, they report being happier. So a distracted mind is a less happy mind. So one of the challenges with stress is that it refocuses our attention. Oftentimes, we're worrying about something that's happened either in the past, as you said, or or about a future outcome. And we're not present. We're not able to fully reap the benefits of what's going on, and particularly our connections with others. Well, Bob, here's here's another very basic question (laughs) for you. So what is happiness? And I realize, you know, it can mean so many different things to different people. I feel pretty happy now. I don't know about you. <laughs> yeah. It's different from the yeah. happiness I feel when I'm playing with my grandchildren, but nonetheless, I feel pretty happy. What is happiness? Well, but, yeah, well, that's a, it's, first of all, it's a great question. And it seems from the research that happiness falls into two big buckets. One is 
hedonic happiness. Am I happy now? And yes, I'm happy talking to you right now. (laughs) But an hour from now, something upsetting might happen and I won't be so happy. And that's the kind of up and down of hedonic happiness. There's another kind of happiness playing with your grandchildren. So think about when your grandchild wants you to play the same game for the 20th time (laughs) and you're exhausted Now, are you having fun playing it for the 20th time? Maybe not. But is it the most meaningful thing you could imagine doing right now? Oh, absolutely. And so that's what sometimes is called eudaimonic well-being. So there's the hedonic partying right now well-being, and then there's the long-term meaning and purpose well-being. And and all of us want some of both and need some of both, but some of us really prioritize one more than the other. I was thinking, Mark, though, that some people just seem to have a happier disposition than others. Some people, you know, struggle with depression Mm -hmm. for probably a whole host of reasons. How do we factor that in? So, of course, there are lots of factors that influence what makes us happy, and our genes are important, our upbringing are important, the circumstances of our life are important, but it's also clear that so much of happiness is really under our control. So some of the best research on this suggests maybe about 50% of our happiness is determined by our life circumstances and what we do, what our actions on a daily level. But life circumstances can run the gamut. I mean, some people are born into really difficult circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the really interesting things about this study, I think, is if we go back to the 1930s and these two original groups of uh, participants, uh, two-thirds of them were facing really big challenges. They were growing up in destitute neighborhoods. They were in homes that were overcrowded. They didn't have running water there. Their, their, their sort of future prospects didn't seem very good. And what we see, and we can contrast that with the students that were at Harvard that had very high prospects in life. And what we see is that the way their journeys happen through life, their social circumstances, their achievement levels, that's not what predicted their happiness. Hmm. It was really their re- relationship. So social circumstances are important. They, they do have an influence. But the robust predictor, the really important predictor, was the context of their relationships. Not Whether it was a, was it a parent or adult or a teacher or a coach or a It's neighbor. the whole gamut. It's, it's all of the relationships. Very few of us can get all we need in one relationship. So relationships, again, give us so many things. For most of us, we're getting this from many people. Bob, it's actually International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and I was, you know, thinking about uh, having gone to Auschwitz, thinking about you know how someone can survive that and see the horrors of the Holocaust and have a good and happy life, and I know that it happens. And is yeah. it about connection? Is it about the connections that one makes that can help survive something as as ter- horrific as that? Well, the Holocaust, of course, is one of the most dramatic examples of this, uh, but other big calamities come our way, uh, the pandemic. Many of our original people lived through the Great Depression Mm -hmm. and the Harvard undergrads were all of an age to go to World War II and many saw combat, terrible combat. And we asked people, how did you get through these terrible times? And almost to a person, they would say, it was my relationships. The soldiers would say it was the people writing letters back home. It was my fellow soldiers. Uh, people would talk about in the Depression neighbors sharing what they had with each other. 
And you even hear people talk about concentration camp situations where people helped each other even when they were under such terrible, terrible distress. So all of this says that our connections provide a kind of safety net that buffer us from some of the worst slings and arrows of fortune. We're almost up in a break here, but um, big and small acts of connection, Robert Waldinger? Yes, and small ones. So, you know, I sometimes say, you know, think about someone you want to connect with, take out your phone and just send them a little text saying, hi, I was just (laughs) thinking of you and wanted to connect. We can do small things that make a difference in this way. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take that very short break and then we'll get back to our conversation here on The Connection. The voice you just heard is Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, also co-author with our other guest, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. And our other guest, again, sitting across from me is Mark Schultz, uh, also a co-director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and he's a professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. Much more to talk about after this very short break. Just a minute. We'll be right back. And you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscoane talking with Robert Waldinger and Mark Schultz about why deep and positive relationships are key to health and well-being, and yes, even happiness. Mark, I, I want to make sure our listeners don't go away thinking, oh, you know, happy relationships. No one ever fights with anybody. Everyone always gets along. I wanted to understand the role of, of conflict and how people deal with conflict. Yeah, such an important question, Marty. So, you know, relationships are messy. We all have this kind of intuitive sense that relationships are good for us, that we experience joy in those connections, but they're challenging. They're unpredictable. There's some aspects of them that are beyond our control. And relationships inevitably involve difference, that if you're close to someone over time, there's no way that you can agree on everything. You're going to have to experience a different difference of opinion and potentially conflict. So um, there's no, you know, it's not a surprise that people shy away from connections. Sometimes they feel like they've been mistreated or burned in past relationships. So part of the good life is leaning in, experiencing those joys and happiness that Bob described. But it's also learning from our differences and growing from those challenges that we face as well. So the good life certainly includes it all, the good, <laughs> the good stuff and the challenges. And yeah. the challenges. Yeah. Bob, how do you suggest, though, people deal with some of those challenges and conflicts in a way that, that supports a relationship? Probably the most important thing is to, to take the long perspective. So let's say I'm having a disagreement right now and it's upsetting to think, what do I want with this person tomorrow? What do I want next week? What do I want a year from now? And to remember that because in the moment it can feel like, ah, this is horrible. I just want to walk away from this person. And so to think about what we have together in this relationship is an essential part of keeping perspective and then seeing if a disagreement can be worked out because, you know, as Mark was saying, there are disagreements in every relationship and that's not a problem because the key is seeing how do we work 
disagreements out. And if we can work disagreements out so that we both come away feeling okay, then the relationship is stable and often gets stronger. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to add that one of the things that we learn both from our research, and Bob and I both do lots of clinical work, is that differences of opinion are also an opportunity for people. It's an opportunity to get to know why it is that you have a difference of opinion, why this person values something that's different than you. So if we can approach this with sort of curiosity, calm those emotions that are challenging for us a little bit so that we can think about it and think with that person about why they may differ, we often grow. We grow in our appreciation and understanding of that person. In fact, Bob, you talk about radical curiosity. How is that regular from just regular curiosity? <laughs> well, you know, I actually learned this um, from my meditation teacher. So I practice Zen, and one of my Zen teachers gave us the instruction once to come to a familiar situation. So let's say the familiar dinner with my wife of 37 years tonight, and to come to that familiar old hat kind of situation and, and say to yourself, what's here that I haven't ever noticed before. That if we bring that kind of curiosity, even to a relationship where we think we know everything about this person, that it can really enrich things to, to get us to look again with fresh eyes. And that's particularly important when we have differences with people. Um, to say, okay, what else is here besides that difference? Mm. And let me see what else I can notice. Let and me, yeah, we, go ahead, Mark. And it looks like it also means, I think, really important for listeners, it's not just fresh eyes about the other person, right? It's also fresh eyes about us. What am I missing about what I may be contributing or that I haven't noticed before? So some of this is reflection that, that should be aimed at us as well and curiosity about it. There are, though, people in, I think, most of our lives who we might describe as toxic. I mean, just it feels, it does not feel good to be with them, even if you're, you know, trying to put the best face on everything. What do we do about them? Yeah, really important. So, you know, we need to kind of scan our, our kind of social universe and think about those folks that we interact with that, that we end up feeling depleted in some ways. As you say, they can be toxic to our health, to our kind of emotional state. Um, I'm, I'm an optimistic and loyal person, so I mm -hmm. always have a hard time cutting ties because I think there are always things that we can learn. But some of us put ourselves in positions where we're vulnerable because of past experience, and it's a particularly toxic experience with this connection. And I think we do need to figure out ways to cut ties or to limit that relationship. Um, a message, though, that we, we try to emphasize in the book, I think is so important, is that many relationships can be saved with work, that just because you're having challenge, just because it's been going on for a while, does not mean that you can't improve that connection. But, Bob, you need both people to agree to try to fix the thing, right? Exactly. And if someone doesn't agree to try and you've given it the best try you can, then you do think about limiting the relationship, stepping away. The difficulty is that often we are in situations where we have so much invested. We may have children together, right? Or we may have work life together or financial interests. And so the, it really is important to see what's possible with somebody. But you're right that if someone else doesn't want to work with me to work something out, it may be time to step away. 
Let me just quickly reintroduce you both, and you're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen, and the voice you heard is Robert Waldinger. He's a professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development. Mark Schultz is with us here in our Philadelphia studios. He is co-director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and he's a professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College, co-author of uh, both of them, I should say, have written a book called The Good Life. Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness, and that's a study that began in the late 1930s and is still going strong. I'm going to make a weird digression (laughs) here, and I'll put this first to you, Mark Schultz. You know, we have enshrined in our Declaration of Independence that we have the right to pursue happiness. Can happiness be pursued? I think it can be a practice. So, so this idea, really interesting to think about. Um, it's not something that happens to us. It may be that we're lucky and fortunate and we experience happiness and a good life, but we can also practice it. We can do it with intention. And for us, the, the practice is really about cultivating relationships. So we think about relationships in a way that's akin to a kind of fitness requirement, that we want to improve our social fitness. It requires intention. It requires reflection about how we're doing. And if we don't do that, our relationships can wane. And because they're such an important source of our happiness and, and fulfillment in life, I think there is a practice that you can develop and pursue. Yeah, and it sounds Marty, like you want to yeah, go ahead, Bob. Oh. Yes, go ahead. No, I heard yeah, you breathe. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, and yeah, and to riff on what Mark is saying, you know, we can't be happy all the time. No one is happy all the time, right? All day, you know, if I if I have something happen in an hour that makes me unhappy, my happiness goes out the window. So then the question is, how do we make ourselves more prone to being happy? And sometimes, some ways I like to say happiness is an accident, but we can make ourselves more accident prone. We can make it more likely that we'll be happy more of the time. And that's through these processes of building relationships, of taking care of our health, of finding meaningful work or meaningful opportunities to give to others, that these are the kind of building blocks that, can, that we can put in place to make happiness more of a common experience in our lives. But picking up on that, um, and we yes, we have this wonderful Declaration of Independence, but Bob, we're also this capitalist society that focuses on success and achievement and money and buying things. And that can also, you know, that can often and generally sort of pull us apart from connections. How do we resolve that that's conflict? Well, that's one of the reasons why we wrote this book, and many people try to talk about this, because what science tells us, following all these lives, is that those things you just mentioned, don't do it. That wealth, not having our material needs met, we all need that, but that wealth does not make us happier. Fame doesn't make us happier. Winning the Nobel Prize doesn't make us happier. And that when we stop listening to all the messages coming from media that tell us to buy these things and we'll be happy, that those kinds of things that lead us astray, when we can tune out those voices and pay more attention to what's right in front of us and the people right in front of us, we can shift our priorities and shift our expectations for what's going to make us happy. Is there a kind of Goldilocks number, Mark Schultz, for 
for money? I mean, that we need a certain amount of money to ensure some modicum of happiness? So in, in the in the research literature, there is this Goldilocks number, which is really about the median income for families in the United States. And I think the key idea, though, is what Bob is talking about, that there's a kind of um, a point at which our material needs are met, in which we feel safe, we feel secure, we have access to health care, we have some control over our lives. And after that, the influence of money on our happiness is really quite small. Even the few studies that suggest that some more money doubling or tripling can add a little bit of happiness, that little bit is tiny. It's really other things that are much more important. So certainly we want to, you know, everyone has the right to live safely, to have food security, uh, to have access to health care. Those are things that are important, and they're at risk for some people still in in Western industrialized countries. And I think we're talking about $70,000. Of, it's of upwards family, of family, yeah, obviously, exactly. depending on where on where you live. Exactly. Do you want to add to that, Bob? Uh, I think that that what Mark has said is right on target, and that um, essentially what we want to do is make sure that we give each other what we need, and that we help provide for other people to have those things that they need to have a happy life. You know, we do know that if you don't have your material needs met, right. if you don't have access to health care, you are significantly less happy. And so if we can help provide these things for other people, we are raising our collective well-being. And, and I'm gonna, just going to add one thing. The Dalai Lama has this wonderful quote. He said, the wise, selfish person takes care of other people. The wise, selfish. So there's some. Oh, okay. So there's something. There, there's a selflessness in selfishness. Yeah. Well, that 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 what we find is that when people care about collective well-being rather than this individualistic pursuit of happiness, that when we invest in in collective well-being, that all boats rise on this rising tide, if you will. So does it mean Bill Gates and Melinda Gates are happy because <laughs> they're giving away their billions of dollars? Well, I think that, you know, the UN Happiness Report, which people can download, they do it every year. And when they ask people, what are the things you need in your life to feel like you have a, a good life? Generosity always comes up all over the world and not just among wealthy people. It's generosity with your time, with your abilities, with your efforts. So yes, I bet Bill and Melinda are happier. <laughs> you, do you agree with that, Mark? I, I, I think there's this clear evidence that when we're generous, when we express gratitude to people to help people, um, like the Dalai Lama suggests, that there's a benefit to us, the givers in that situation. So I think being generous, being part of a community, being part of something bigger than ourselves, really an important idea. And I, I want to go back to something that we were talking about because it's so important. One of the other challenges with money is that it, it's really distracting. It's easy to count our salary and our income. It's much harder to count what we give to other people in terms of the, the warmth and kindness that we provide. So part of the allure of money, part of why it's so um, – um, shiny and, and distracting for us is that it's easy to count. Um, and there are things literally, that are, you mean that easy to count? Literally, it's easy to count. And there are things that we think are more important that are harder to count, but they give a return that sense of internal connection that we, we really value with other people. Really, you know, important. Uh, Bob, let me go back to you. And this is a study that's been going on for 85 years. Are people hard to predict? 
Yes, <laughs> that's what's so <laughs> fun about this, right? Like you, you, you think you see where someone's life is going, and then it turn. It takes a turn. All of our lives take unexpected turns, some more than others, and so that's important because in the book we have a chapter called "It's Never Too Late," mm-hmm. and what that refers to is that some people think. I know my life is not going well when it comes to my relationships. This is never going to happen for me. And then some of the people in our study find that when they least expect it, they find a tribe, they find connection that they didn't expect to. They find love that they didn't expect to. And so we put the stories in the book, real stories of real people, deliberately to show these examples. And that's what's so exciting about getting to watch how lives play out over eight decades. Sure, and people get to look back on their lives. In fact, there there's so many people in this book. The, the one that I pulled out is a, a man named Leo DeMarco, who you both describe as really mm. the happiest, mm-hmm. I guess, participant. Mark, can you tell us a little bit about Leo and what he can tell us? Yeah, so Leo was one of the participants from the student sample. He was a student at Harvard. He was a good student. He was interested in being a writer, um, had some real talent in writing. And World War II came around, and he volunteered to serve in the military and went abroad and served and um, had you know an incredible set of experiences, much like a, a number of the other men in the study. And he came back, and unfortunately, his mom was sick, and he had to go back to Vermont and be with his mom and help out his family. Um, he had kept diaries during the war that he hoped to maybe make into a, a book or a novel or some sort of essay about the war. Mm-hmm. Um, the writing career never panned out, but he um, built a life that was filled with connections. He met soon after he had come home. He met the love of his life, remained married to that woman for his entire life, uh, had a beautiful family, really connected to his children in important ways. And he became a high school teacher instead of a writer. And he became a beloved high school teacher. Uh, Students loved him. Colleagues loved him. He became an important mentor. So he really leaned into connections in his life. And he was, as you said, one of the happiest people in our study. And he saw connections everywhere. Everywhere. And, And he was also a person who was really present. So when you talk to him, he was a person who gave you his attention. He was interested in your experience. Uh, You learned things talking to him. So it was that connection, not just the number of connections, but the quality of connection when he was with people was very powerful. Bob, how much does luck play a role in, if we're talking about happiness or thriving or, or even connection? Well, luck does play a role, and and we have to really point that out because some people struggle with great big obstacles uh, that happen to them through no fault of their own. Um, what we do find, though, is that each of us has a kind of happiness set point that when they do studies of this, that people who win the lottery uh, don't get happier and stay happier. They return to their baseline levels of happiness about a year later. And even people who have paralyzing accidents return to their baseline levels of happiness a year later. And so all that means that, yes, our circumstances are important, but there is also a way in which we can um, maintain a kind of equilibrium. And, And if we think about Leo... And the example that Mark just described, Leo was a person who had a setback. His dream was to be a writer. But when he couldn't do that because of family obligations, 
He was handed lemons and he made lemonade. He, hmm. he started teaching history, loved his students, loved his colleagues. So there are ways that we can take our life circumstances sometimes and find the sources of joy and fulfillment, even in difficult circumstances. And we're almost up in a break here, but Mark, that's resilience, isn't it? It is resilience. And, and what we see, you know, challenges are inevitable in, in our lives. And the participants over the course of their lives, they went through the Depression, World War II, Korean War, the upheaval of the 60s, that it's really not the avoidance of challenges. It's really how we encounter them and the ways in which we're able to make meaning and perhaps grow from those challenges. Well, we are talking about uh, connections here on The Connection on WHYY. That's Mark Schultz, also with us, Robert Waldinger. And we are talking about uh, some of the findings in their new book, The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. Much more after this very short break. We'll be back in just 60 seconds. Stay with us. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moskowain. We are talking about what makes a happy and healthy life. In fact, that's the question at the heart of the longest study on happiness by the Harvard Study of Adult Development. It's been going on since 1938. That's 85 years. And uh, researchers found uh, that fulfilling relationships, deep positive relationships are really key to a happy and healthy life. And again, talking with Robert Waldinger, he's professor of psychiatry at Harvard University, director of the study. Also with us, uh, Mark Schultz, and he is co-director of the study, professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. And again, they've got a new book called The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. We talked a little bit about, you know, what, what life can throw our way, but I do want to start or go back, Mark, to the very, very beginning, to when we are born, and the importance of secure attachment to a baby, what that means, what that looks like, and how that can help sort of set people on a path to positive relationships. Yeah, yeah. So early on, we're very vulnerable as infants and and young children, and we look to our caretakers, our parents, for providing that support and security. And the, the kind of relationship, the routine that we develop in that context with our parents sets a kind of set of expectations and kind of relational standards, if you will, that we carry through our lifetime. So some of us are lucky to grow up in circumstances where it's predictable and secure, and we benefit from those connections. (coughs) Excuse me. And some of us struggle more. We have uh, parents who are not as present and able to provide that structure for us. So That kind of predictability and secure base is how we talk about it when we think about attachment. Really important to how we think about the world and the kind of relationship security that we carry forward in our later relationships as well. Bob, what what does that attachment look like? And and, and (coughs) I know, I mean, touch is a really important part of that early parent-child relationship. But when you look at secure attachment, (coughs) what does it look like? Right. Well, it... What every child needs is a consistent, caring adult, ideally who's crazy about them. That's Michael Rutter's phrase, the the great developmental scientist. And what it looks like is a sense of trust that the world is basically a safe place and that the people who are in authority, the people I rely on, are reliable. And the, the difficulty about trauma 
in childhood. And the difficulty about those conditions that make us insecurely attached is it leaves us with a sense as we grow up that the world isn't safe and that other people can't be relied upon when I need help. That can be corrected, and, and we want to we name that really clearly, that many people find friends, find partners who are reliable and who can help someone reset their expectations for what's possible with other people. But that's why childhood trauma is such a terrible thing and leaves us with such a difficult legacy as we then go into adulthood. So one person can, in a sense, you know, make up for... A, a traumatic childhood, Mark? Absolutely. So we can have what we think about as kind of corrective emotional experiences that we can, if, if we had those struggles when we were a child, we didn't get the things we needed from our parents. If we're in a relationship that provides that kind of predictability, safety, sense of security, respect for who we are, we can grow. Our, our Literally, our, our kind of models of relationship are changed by that. So emotionally, it's a, it's a corrective experience mm-hmm. for people. Um, really important. It can happen with a close, intimate relationship. It can happen, as Bob suggested, with close friendships. Some people experience it in therapy is where they get it. But there are lots of ways that we can have those corrective experiences. Uh, Bob, it's it's it sort of makes sense that people would seek out the familiar. So one often hears that in traumatic childhoods, then you kind of recreate those relationships as an adult, and 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 can get in trouble because of that. Well, it is true, and what we think happens is that because it feels like home, because it feels familiar, we gravitate towards something, even though consciously we don't want it, and so that's why people can end up without realizing it, getting into relationships as adults where they are abused, where they're traumatized, because they came from homes where that was the case. The wonderful thing about, for example, psychotherapy is that people can become more aware of these patterns and then begin to make different choices. Um, It's when these these choices happen uh, unconsciously, out of awareness, that we see people repeating them over and over again. Let me throw something else out. And I was thinking, and I think we all feel about the sort of demands, the distractions of our lives, of the times that we live in. It's so easy to feel disconnected. We've been talking a lot about about connections, but disconnected because of all the demands on, on us. How, Mark, do we, how do we deal with that part? This is, this is a big problem, a big societal challenge. We think it's one of the really important challenges that we all need to sort of take on uh, government, the, the places we work, the communities that we're in. The rates of loneliness are really quite extraordinary. 20 to 40 percent of adults report being lonely. Um, so part of it is technology and these distractions that we're talking about. A part of it is social forces that have evolved over decades that have left us more distant from the communities that we've grown up with. So our friends that we know from childhood, our families we're more distant from. So I think we need to really think intentionally about ways to build those connections. Technology can be our friends as we build those connections, but they also, unfortunately, 
are distractors. They're, they're, they're attention grabbers. Our attention is so important for our connections with others. So we really need to battle against the, the kind of passive acceptance of technology and the distractions that comes with us, that, that, that come with them. So I uh, need to get off screens, hmm. need to be present when we're with people and really give them our attention. It's a real challenge. It's a, it's a challenge for all of us. Indeed. And Bob, I mean, the, these devices, they do connect us and they do disconnect us. And uh, yeah. how do we navigate that? Well, there's some research showing that how we use the devices really makes a difference in our well-being, that if we use them to connect with other people, we are happier, we feel better, we feel like we belong. So actually, one of my friends during the COVID pandemic, he reconnected with his old elementary school friends. And now they have coffee on Zoom every Sunday morning, and they are thrilled. And that's a kind of active use of social media that really enhances our well-being through connection. If we passively consume somebody else's Instagram feed or Facebook page, you know, that's what lowers our well-being. So think about all the curated lives that we look at. We post our happy pictures, right? But it can leave us when we watch other people's feeds feeling like, gosh, everybody else is having a great life and, and my life isn't like that. Not at all. <laughs> right. And, and we know that adolescents are particularly susceptible to this, to watching other people's lives play out on Instagram and TikTok and feeling like they're missing out. And so when we passively consume uh, digital media, that's when our well-being seems to be lower. I take the train, and, and I will admit, I'm one of those people with my face and my devices. I'm coming and going to work, as is, I would say, most everyone else mm -hmm, uh, on sure. my public transit there. Um, and But if something happens, we all look up and react and maybe look at each other or say something to each other. It's a very interesting phenomenon. I think it is. You know, we, we talk in the book about this idea about strangers on the train. It's some really interesting research done by Nicholas Epley and colleagues at University of Chicago. And what they did is they, they looked at people on their morning commutes and they found that most people were looking at their phones or zoning out and, and preferred not to talk to people. And because they were psychologists, they cruelly kind of randomly assigned some people to talk <laughs> to strangers on their yeah. commute. This was in the Chicago trains and buses. And they asked them their mood before and after the commute. And people said, if I talk to strangers, I'm going to be unhappy. And it turned out that the folks who were forced to talk to strangers said they were happier than the folks that did their usual routine. Hmm. And there are a bunch of reasons for that. We have this idea that people will think we're strange or that we'll be rejected in some ways, that it won't be pleasant. But we find when we talk to strangers, we get this kind of jolt of connection that stays with us. And it's quite extraordinary. As I've talked about this, I, I hear these amazing stories about people that connected with someone they didn't know or they walk past every day but they never talked to. And that experience carries with them the entire day. They talk to their partner about how they had this great conversation with that neighbor that we've never talked to. That there's this sort of longing for connection that I think that satisfies that's really important. So it's an example of a little bird that can make us really feel connection and, and happiness, a, a sense of, you know, sort of joy. Sure. And Bob, is that burst oxytocin? I mean, are we talking about a kind of chemical high? <laughs> well, that's above my pay grade. Okay. So there, there are neuroscientists who can really give you a much more educated answer. 
about that. I, we are working that out. Scientists are working it out. Um, but what we do know, actually, Wendy Suzuki, who's a neuroscientist at NYU, talks about giving our brains a kind of delicious bubble bath. She talks mm-hmm. about it with exercise, but also with social connection. But the precise uh, components of that bubble bath uh, are yet to be determined fully. <laughs> well, stay tuned. <laughs> Bob, let me go back to you because I know this is within your, your pay grade here or your area of expertise because the study says that we are we human beings are not very good predictors of maybe our own behavior, other people's behavior. Help us understand why that's so. Well, the experiment that Mark just talked about um, it p- points to this problem that we're all kind of a little reluctant to reach out, to connect. Partly it's because relationships are unpredictable. You know, if I stay home and watch something on Netflix, I pretty much know what my evening is going to be like. But if I go to a party or if I go to even just to meet a friend I know well, that person, like me, is constantly changing. And relationships are constantly filled with people who are changing and moving. And so there's a little bit of reluctance when we connect with each other. And the reluctance is, what am I going to encounter? With a stranger, it's, it's who, is this person going to like me and respond to me? With a friend, it's going to be, am I going to have to talk about things that are upsetting? It could be any number of worries. But it's all about the that element of unpredictability in our relationships that make them, first of all, interesting and wonderful, but also um, arenas where we're a little reluctant to engage and we have to overcome that slight resistance to do it. You know, I think a, a lot of us spend as much time or maybe even more time at work than we do at home or even with our partners. And, you know, you can develop really intense friendships and bonds at work. How important, Mark, is that for just productivity, for happiness? Yeah, so there's more and more research that it is important for productivity and satisfaction of workers. And I think it's, you know, again, something really critical for companies to be thinking about, all of us to be thinking about, as we imagine professions of people who are working long-distance truck drivers or people working in warehouses where the lights go out because there aren't people next to them in the warehouse, that many people are in jobs in which it's hard to have those connections. So I, I, I think the kind of message is that we need to think hard about a place where we're spending a large part of our working life. Where can we get those connections? We all want to you know, basically similar things. We want to be seen. We want to be heard, understood. So where can we find those? It might be in interactions with customers or clients or colleagues. But those kinds of repeated interactions that are important in our life, really critical for our sense of connection and well-being. Robert, especially during and, and since the pandemic, a lot of people have changed their their work schedule. So they're not at work as much as they were. Uh, they're working from home. How does connection operate under under some of those strictures? Well, everybody's worried about that, of course. Mm. And, and it may mean we have to be more intentional in creating opportunities to know each other. Um, there's an example. Vivek Murthy, our Surgeon General, uh, started something in his weekly staff meeting where for the first five minutes, one person in the meeting presented, just talked about something in their personal life that they wanted everyone to know. People loved this part of the meeting. 
this we could even do online. Um, that it may mean setting up these opportunities to know a little bit about each other personally. Because actually the Gallup organization did a survey and found that the people who had a best friend at work were much more engaged in their work. They mm. were more productive workers and they were certainly happier. And how much is gossip important at work in maintaining these friendships and these love love relationships even? Really important. And I, I think, Mark, Bob, we have to mention that this is our – Bob and I know each other for 30 years. We work together hard on our, our work, but we also have a friendship. And this is our hour and a half Friday at noon that we usually spend talking to each other. So we're doing that with you today. Um, and part of what we do is we talk about our lives and gossip about colleagues um, there, there are a number of things that connect us with others, and um, small talk is really important. One of the challenges with technology is we can do work remotely. We can do this hybrid work, um, but it becomes more transactional. We lose yeah. that, that lovely interchange that happens just before a meeting, bumping into someone on the way out of the meeting. So the example that Bob talks that Vivek Murphy is talking about, really good, clever example, but we need to figure out more of these ways to connect. About a minute before I have to say goodbye, um, Bob, and, and you end the book by saying it's never too late to be happy. Yes, and that's what these stories in the book illustrate. They're real stories of real people, even though the names are disguised. And, and it's all to make the point that if you feel like this is never going to happen for you, really important to think again because you just don't know that, that at any point in your life, these connections are possible, and you don't know when it's going to happen, so it's worth making the effort. Well, we have to leave it there. My thanks to both of you for joining us today on The Connection, the debut of The Connection. Robert Waldinger, thanks so much. Oh, this was a pleasure. Thank you for joining my meeting with Mark on Friday afternoon. <laughs> yes, we got to eavesdrop. I, I didn't ask a lot of personal questions, but we'll get to you next time. He's a professor yeah. of psychiatry at Harvard University, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, co-author with our other guests of The Good Life, Lessons from the World's Longest Study on Happiness. Mark Schultz, thanks for coming in. Such a pleasure. Thanks for having You're us. You're very welcome. Co-director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and he's a professor of psychology at Bryn Mawr College. Well, thank you for joining us for the debut of The Connection. We will be here every Friday at noon. There are so many ways that you can connect with us. You can check out the, the website, whyy.org slash The Connection, where you can sign up for the podcast and the newsletter. Also, Instagram uh, at The Connection, WHYY, and email us at The Connection at WHYY. Our engineer today, Diana Martinez. Debbie Builder is the senior producer of The Connection. Paige Murray Bessler, Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoen, your host and executive producer. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next Friday at noon.